This is the History Tavern Podcast. Dr. Gary Gallagher has spent 40 years studying and writing about the Civil War and considering the best methods historians can use to obtain a meaningful understanding of the conflict. Dr. Gallagher has also stressed the need to carefully extract memory from history, emphasizing that memory often masks the reality of history. In this episode of the History Tavern Podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony. I talked to Dr. Gary Gallagher about his brand new book, The Enduring Civil War, Reflections on the Great American Crisis. The book is a collection of essays that, as Gallagher explains, allows him to investigate how mid-19th century perceptions align with, or deviate from, some of those we now hold regarding the origins, conduct, and aftermath of the war. The essays cover everything from the way Ulysses Grant and Robert E. Lee are remembered, to the greatest Civil War movies, to the American West, and much more. Our conversation picks up after I asked Dr. Gallagher, about the role historians should play in writing about the Civil War. Well, I think there are different roles for historians. My main point always regarding this question is historians should just be honest about what they're doing. And there's a long tradition of history as advocacy and looking to the past as a way to serve needs in the present. And that's fine as far as I'm concerned, as long as you're is you're honest about what you're doing. My preferred kind of history is to go back. It's, it's, what, it's, it's essentially what you said just a minute ago, go back, immerse yourself in as many of the sources as possible, and then go where those sources point you, even if they might point you in a direction that you didn't originally think you were going to go. In other words, play it, be honest with the evidence. Go where the evidence leads you. You can, you can either do it that way or you, a way that a lawyer approaches evidence is select the evidence that suits whatever argument you need to make, ignore the rest of the evidence, and make your argument. I think a lot of history in the name of advocacy does that. And you can always find sources that support whatever it is you want to argue. It's, the history is filled with sources. And, and that's certainly a way that you can go at it. What about sources? I I had the great pleasure of attending, I think it was two years ago now, the Civil War Institute, where you were uh, up on stage with one of your former students, Peter Carmichael, and you had a very lively discussion, which I enjoyed thoroughly. And, uh, there, and I often do have lively discussions. Yeah, well, not exactly that. I mean, so, and, and I talked to him a few months ago and sort of asked him about that. And he said, you, you, you two have different approaches. And, and I, uh, on his side, he thinks that you can sort of, here's a source, here's what somebody said, but we can get underneath it. We could sort of, there are things we can uh, sort of parse out, even if that person didn't think that or didn't say that. And right. he said, you're different. You know, you compile sources. And this is his words. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to start anything. I'm just so, sort of really trying to have an argument about how to write history. He said, you know, you put sources and whichever sources is this, the highest stack, that's where the evidence leads you. So is there, you know, I mean, first off, uh, again, how, how do you use sources? Is, is it just what's written on the page and we go with it and, and that's history? Well, I, I mean, there are people in my world who say that what we should, it's really more important what they don't talk about than what they talk about. Let's read the silences. Okay, I'm willing to say it might be fun to read the silences, but what, how can you know precisely what a silence is? You don't know why there's a silence there. You can have no idea. 
in terms of Peter's idea, getting under, okay, they didn't say this, but this is what it really means. I don't even know why I do some of the things I do. How can I understand why someone 150 years ago who in his or her diary didn't say X was really talking about X? And the fact that they didn't talk about X illuminates X. I mean, that's, that's an interesting exercise, but I think that it, it takes quite a leap uh, to think that you're really going to be on very firm ground when you do that. Others disagree with me. Um, it, so it's, it's one reason why there's not just one book on the Civil War. <laughs> Uh, there are lots of books on the Civil War because people look at the same evidence and often draw different conclusions from it. I tend to think people often write what they mean, and so I feel a little more comfortable. If, if, if a diarist says, I'll never vote for Abraham Lincoln in this election because I don't think we should have had the war uh, fought to free slaves. I think we should have had the war fought to free the Union. I'm going to pretty much take that at face value and not try to discover what the silences might mean there or what some deeper uh, uh, meaning might be drawn from that. Peter and I disagree. Peter, Peter and I've had comments about, uh, you know, P Peter will say something like, well, you can look at 10,000 letters, but there are millions of letters written during the Civil War. And of course, that's true. We can't ever look at more than a very very small percentage of, of the evidence. On the other hand, Peter is willing to use truly a handful of sources, three or four, or even one in some cases, to, marry, to make very broad generalizations. It's just an example of how historians can talk about evidence, reach different conclusions about how best to use it, and write their books. And then people read the books, and right. they can make what they will of them. Right. Um, and if anybody hasn't watched that discussion between uh, Peter Carmichael and Dr. Gary Gallagher, uh, it's worth watching. It's on C-SPAN. I, 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 I've watched it a couple of times since. It's, but it gets to the heart of, you know, how you write history. And, and I think like you're saying, there are different approaches um, and some some have more value than others or some bring different things to the table. Um, a couple examples of uh, of what we're talking about with sources. Uh, you spend some time in this book, which is a collection of of essays that you've written over the years. It's called The Enduring Civil War. Again, a very good book, sort of, um, uh, I don't want to oversimplify, but your greatest hits in terms of you are touching on everything that is relevant and being talked about these days, but you've been writing about them for a very long time. Um, so sources, a couple of examples. You write about the Grand Review after the war. Uh, and you also touch on the American West and sort of, again, this is an example of you going where the sources take you in that in the moment that that event is happening. So the Grand Review, people are writing about it. They had a feeling about it then. Lots of people were yeah. writing about it, in fact. Right. So if you could just sort of uh, either touch on both, you know, the, the Grand Review first, what were people saying and sort of what has it turned into since then in terms of how historians the, cover it? The, the Grand Review, of course, was the two-day uh, parade of United States soldiers at the end of the war, toward the end of May 1865. And it, and it had Sherman's armies and it had the Army of the Potomac. So there were lots of Union soldiers who weren't present. But these were the, the most famous soldiers of the Republic at that point, who also happened to be in Washington, which was crucial. Uh, there, the final decision to have the Grand Review was very much an 11th hour thing. Nobody, even a few days before, Sherman didn't know whether there was going to be one or not. And he said he wished someone would have told him. Uh, he'd, he'd read about it. Anyway, 
it has been interpreted most often recently by historians as a sort of uh, militaristic exercise that shows how militaristic the Republic had come. The United States is this great military juggernaut that then would project this power in the 20th century. And it was profoundly flawed because there were no USCT, no United States Colored Troops units that marched in the parade. So it shows how this racist, exclusionary, militaristic Republic was strutting its stuff after winning a big war. That to me is a way to use history to sort of serve our current purposes. The way people at the time interpret it, it's the antithesis of militarism. What the people at the time emphasized was, these are citizen soldiers. What are they going to do? They're going to go home. They're not going to be soldiers anymore. The whole point of this was to get it over with and then go home and not be soldiers anymore. So to see it as a militaristic, a kind of orgasmic exercise in militarism really does miss the mid-19th century point of the Grand Review. The Grand Review showed how a citizenry fulfilling its obligation to a republic that gave it a voice in government and a chance to rise economically, those that citizenry had put on uniforms, picked up muskets, suppressed the rebellion, and now they were going home. And that made the United States different from any other place in the world, argued Americans at the time. And a lot of foreign correspondents said the same thing. In terms of the USCT units, the USCT units were on their way to the Rio Grande uh, at that point. They had been consolidated by that point in the war and they were moving, they simply, they weren't there. And lots of other troops weren't there either. The Army of the Cumberland uh, wasn't there. It deserved to be in a big review. Part of the Army of the Potomac wasn't there. The United States Navy wasn't there. The sailors had fought as well. So the point is that it's it's possible to take the Grand Review and turn it into something that I think the contemporary understanding of it very strongly says is simply not right when we look at it now. And I've been talking a lot, and you can take a breath, and before I get to the West and and ask yeah, comment. So, so uh, and, and we'll get to the West in a second, but I think that sort of Again, the citizen soldiers all over your work, not just in this book, but in your other books. And you think that that's such a valuable way of looking at Union soldiers in the war. Uh, they were they weren't just soldiers. They they dictated events, you know, by how they felt and by their politics. And so uh, somebody who you say so you have a fascination with uh, is George McClellan uh, uh, and sort of I do. He's really important. So, so talk about what so what George McClellan tells us, especially the bond that he has with the soldiers. Well, I think George McClellan had had an incredible way of making men feel like soldiers who had something important to do. When he built the army, the Potomac, the Potomac essentially took a rabble and made them feel like they were an army. George McClellan, first to last, believed that the war was a war to restore the Union. He didn't want to complicate it with emancipation, as we all know very well, and his, his Harrison's Landing letter and other things make that clear. That's also how most of the soldiers who put on blue uniforms viewed the war. It was first to last a war to save the Union. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them eventually embraced emancipation as one of the tools to achieve that end. But McClellan and the soldiers were aligned on that. McClellan made them feel like soldiers. He took great time 
to show that he cared about them, and they reciprocated, and they loved him in a way they never loved any other commander of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, Sherman soldiers, he had a great bond with his men. Sheridan had a great bond with the men. It, to me, it's always been interesting that Grant never had that kind of bond with his soldiers, the kind that McClellan had, or Sherman had, or Sheridan, and never mind Lee. So it's, McClellan is really important. He's also important because he created a culture in his army that prevented its winning the war earlier, as far as I'm concerned. He created a, a, a culture of caution and no, don't take risks, play it safe, don't do anything till you're pretty sure you're gonna be successful and that's not, and Grant had a hard time rooting that culture out of the army. And the last part of it to go didn't go till April 1st at Five Forks when Governor Warren gets removed on the field in the midst of a battle. That's kind of the end of McClellan's hold over the Army of the Potomac. McClellan is really important, really important in the war. Let's uh, go back to the American West and, and again to, uh, well, so, so there's been recent scholarship about uh, the West and the significance of the West, not just the, the significance uh, of the West in the war, but the West being part of a bigger uh, war, uh, national war to, to you know, uh, whether it, colonialism or, or whatever the word you want to use. But there, there's that argument that the Indian wars in the West are one and the same with the civil war going on in the East. Uh, right. And and th that's just something that you don't you don't buy into uh, and, and you don't because of the sources, you, you know, nobody. Yeah, I, was just, I only I don't buy into it only because nothing at the time suggests it's true. <laughs> right. Right. So. So what 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 is it? I mean, it's it's separate and, and well, the sources. Yeah. I, I mean, I, the, of course, the West is important in the coming of the Civil War. The whole question of whether slavery will expand into the West is the flashpoint for the coming of the Civil War. The Democratic Party couldn't agree on that. The Democratic Party dissolved in 1860 in its two conventions, the last national party, so to speak. Does Congress pay any attention to the West during the war? It passes the Homestead Act, passes the Transcontinental Railway. It, it takes care of a lot of things it had been trying to do before the war, part of Congress, when all the Democrats who'd been from Southern states left Congress, then they can pass all that legislation and the Land-Grant College Act and so forth. I'm not pretending that, this, that, that, no one pays it, that no one paid any attention to the West. I'm just saying that the West had been an ongoing process and kept going. It would have gone on whether there'd been a war or not. The, the, it really focuses on the Southwest, this argument. How important is the Southwest? And Henry Hopkins, Sibley's little campaign up the Rio Grande in 1862 is part of that. How it's, if only the Confederacy could have gotten that, and then Colorado, and then California, and all of this, and they pay a lot of attention to it, and it's all part of the same war, and the Sioux uprising, the, the Dakota Sioux uprising in 1862 is part of the same war. The Long Walk of the Navajo, Sand Creek, and I just, I just absolutely disagree with that. And I'm a Westerner. Right, I was right. born yeah. in Los Angeles. I grew up in Southern Colorado. The nearest battlefield to me were Sibley's battles up near Santa Fe, Glorieta Pass, Apache Canyon. Uh, those were the battles that were, that were closest to me. I say if you want to determine how important something is to someone, follow the money. How many resources were allocated to this war? And the answer is almost none, almost none for the entire war. 
And it's also telling to me that the soldiers who were the United States soldiers, the Union soldiers, the state and national troops who were involved in those places, didn't treat it as part of the real war. For them, the real war was suppressing the rebellion. That's the real war. This other stuff is part of a process that had been going on literally since the colonial era, since the Pequot War and the Tidewater Wars, and carrying down through removal from the old Southwest. It's part of a much longer trajectory. The Dakota uprise, Dakota Sioux uprising, Sand Creek, which does not involve the United States government, incidentally. That's Colorado and a handful of New Mexico uh, volunteers there. The long walk of the Navajo, those are not, they happened during the Civil War. They're not Civil War stories to me. They are part of a much longer trajectory of interaction between the United States government and the, and the um, territorial areas with Native Americans. Let's shift to some of the work that you've done on the Confederate cause. And you have a book called uh, the is it called the Confederate War? I'm sorry, I I, I have it here, but uh, but no, it is it's, called it's, the Confederate War. It's twenty more, yeah. almost twenty five years ago. Twenty five years ago, but of course, uh, you you touch on a lot of the things you touched on in that book in this book, um, and you talk about some of the criticism you received in uh, after you wrote that book. Uh, essentially, your your argument in that book is that. Contrary to what a lot of people believe in how sort of um, the, the, the by 1864, the Confederate ar- the Confederate Army really is in a, in a bad way and their institutions are crumbling and it's only a matter of time. But you write that they are sort of remarkably uh, united, but they are because they're the, the reality of losing slavery is now really there and they are desperate. And so. Can you talk about not only your argument, which I probably massacred there, but uh, it's but you the, sort of the blowback you got for writing something like that, where ultimately I I think it tr- it treats the, conf- the the South harsher than a lot of other arguments, but sort of can you talk about your argument and how it was received? Well, well the, uh, the popular argument at the time I wrote that, and I was writing against the literature was that the Confederacy fell apart because of internal causes. In other words, there was disaffection with the war. Women didn't support the war. Uh, Slavery was breaking down. African-Americans clearly didn't support the war. Uh, I mean, duh. I mean, I I believe everybody with more than a 20-watt bulb understands that African-Americans were not Confederates and shouldn't be considered Confederates. But that really, that is that there was tremendous class conflict that was roiling the Confederacy, it was a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. And that is why the Confederacy failed. It didn't fail because the United States military power in the end proved able to crush Confederate uh, military forces, but it simply was falling apart from within. And that there never really had been a nation there at all. And people had never thought of themselves as Confederates. It had been, it really had just been a kind of loose congregation of disaffected people. And, and again, looking at the sources and the question was if it was such a nation why didn't they fight longer uh to me the more pertinent question seemed to be why did they fight as long as they did in if they didn't consider themselves a nation i saw a very easy transition from a sense of southernness among white southerners in a slaveholding society before the war to a sense of being confederates and and a sense of real 
nationhood there. They used the language of nationhood. They, they mustered probably 85%, uh, mobilized 85% of their entire white military-age population, which is stunning. And, and a quarter of them, at least by the old numbers, were killed. That seems to me quite a serious attempt to establish your nation if you're willing to give up a quarter of your entire military-age white male population, a far higher rate than was lost on the United States side during the war, never mind in any of our other wars where we don't even come remotely close to that. And it also seemed to me that why the Confederacy lost in the end was because Union military forces proved they could march through Georgia, through the Carolinas, and in the end crush the Army in Northern Virginia, which was the most important national institution in the Confederacy. And when that happens, it's over. That's when it's over. And so, of course, there is disaffection with the war. Of course, there's class conflict. That, to me, is an utterly uninteresting question, unless you can prove that the class conflict really has an effect. There's always class conflict, everywhere and always. I don't think you can show uh, that the old notion was that slaveholders, the rich man's war, poor man's fight argument, suggests slaveholders didn't pull their oar. In fact, they were overrepresented in Confederate armies, both within the ranks and among the officer corps. Joe Glattar's done the best job of putting numbers on that in his history of the Army in Northern Virginia. There was just a lot that seemed wrong. But for making that argument, the charge came back at me that, well, I must be a neo-Confederate if I'm arguing that the Confederates tried hard. Uh, it, it's arguing what seemed to me obvious from the sources was turned around. And I mean, not everybody argued that. And that book was very good to me. It got me, it, it's, it, it, and it still sold lots of copies, got a lot of adoptions in classrooms, but it was, but there was a lot of blowback at, at the time. Well, but I mean, and, and uh, from my my perspective for what it's worth, I mean, and, and again, not that you're going where the sources take you, but where the sources take you actually is that this is a society that is so, especially by 64, desperate to hold on to slavery, that it, it's, it's a uniting, it's a uniting sort of thing. And that's, that's what prolongs the war. Um, it's uh, the Emancipation Proclamation changed everything. Uh, it upped the ante incredibly. And even with someone, I mean, Robert E. Lee, some of the some people who, who don't read sources carefully pretend that Robert E. Lee was kind of anti-slavery. He's almost a closet abolitionist of sorts. He's not at all. He wasn't among the virulent pro-slavery ideologues, but he was absolutely on board with the slaveholding society. When you read his reaction to the Emancipation Proclamation, you can see just how viscerally the white South reacted to this. This is going to undo their entire... The problem with being a white Southerner is whether you own slaves or not is how do you control black people when you know they don't want to be enslaved and the answer is slavery and if if the abolitionists in what many confederates they said the emancipation proclamation just is letting them letting the north honestly say what this is is a huge war of servile that they're they're promoting a servile insurrection on a massive scale and and they're going to fight to the last ditch if that's what's at stake George B. McClellan's war wouldn't have had that much at stake. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you uh, shift just a little bit to military history as as a whole in the Civil War and why it is so important? I mean, you've already touched on it in a number of ways, but there is definitely an aversion uh, amongst academics to talk about 
to write about battles and and uh, uh, just to talk about the war uh, as a military conflict. Number one, I guess, because it's just so interesting to me. Why is that the case? And then number two, again, a big question. But why why is it important to look at battles? I mean, you you bring the point up over and over again about follow the Union Army and 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 follow emancipation and you know follow the effect that battles have on the politics of the war. So can you just sort of go into that a little bit. Well, I think yes, I I think in in the academic world, which I've occupied now since the mid-1970s, there's always, and even before that, there was an aversion of military history. Um, the only prize that the Organization of American Historians gives to the Civil War era, for example, deliberately excludes works of military history. Can't win it. I think military history is seen, it's disliked on a number of counts. One is that it's, 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 sort of a you-are-what-you-write-about attitude. If you write about this, you must be militaristic. And so you must just love militarism and battles. It's also seen as kind of simple-minded and simplistic. What There's no difficulty in writing about military history. There's also an aversion to biography in academia, and much of military history is biography. It's biography of generals. It's how do generals do this and that. And so I think for a range of reasons, Military history has never had much of a foothold in academia. A lot of departments have not a single person who does military history, although the classes are always popular, which is interesting. If you offer a course on World War II, it'll fill up at a university. Never, and on the Civil War, the same thing is true. And, but there's also a sense that all military history is, is this regiment went left here. It's all about regiments and where were the batteries. It, it's, the, it's an antiquarian effort to write a 400-page book on the first hour of the fighting in the railroad cut at Gettysburg. It's that kind of thing. When, in fact, military history does much more than that. And military history resonates in so many ways in U.S. history but also specifically in Civil War history, you can't understand anything that's going on if you don't understand all the ways that military history and non-political history and social history are interacting. And emancipation is a perfect example. You mentioned emancipation. The factor that often gets lost in debates about who should get credit for emancipation, is it self-emancipation? Is it Abraham Lincoln? Is it the radicals in Congress? Often left out or just sort of alluded to is the role of the United States military forces, which is absolutely central to emancipation in the Civil War. Without that, the Emancipation Proclamation is words on a piece of paper. It means nothing. It doesn't matter. And no matter how desperately enslaved people want to break out of the institution, the ones who have the best chance of doing so are the ones who are close to where Union armies come. And, that, and you can chart emancipation by watching where the Union armies go during the Civil War. And that's even Union armies where the white soldiers don't care about black people, which is most of them. Right, right. Um, so 
I don't mean to be shouting. No, no, I no, no, please. It's good for it's good for my podcast. So, uh, th- thank you very much. Um, uh, so, can you? So, you you talk in, in this book. There's a number of different essays about uh, historians that you admire and 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 sort of the the uh, what they brought to the table and maybe what they didn't bring to the table. One historian who you uh, seem to really admire is Harry Fance uh, and sort of his his approach to writing history. So what what is what was so good about what he what he did? You seem just sort of when you read his his work initially, sort of blown away by it. Well, I, I mean, I talk about mainly after I wrote about Harry Harry Fonz, who was a who was a friend and a, a great historian of Gettysburg. Harry made the cut just because really he was such a dear friend of mine and he had helped me so much understand Gettysburg, especially the wheat field at Gettysburg, which I'd never understood until I walked around it with Harry. I thought Harry was, uh, was a sort of model for writing operational and tactical history. He was very careful. He played it straight with the sources. The fact that he was a combat veteran from World War II gave him a sense of what can happen on a battlefield. But someone such as I, who wasn't, I didn't have that experience in my life. And I don't think you can read about it and understand it the way someone who has experienced it can. Uh, Harry was just a model for me in those ways, apart from being one of the the kindest and best gentlemen I've, I've ever known. The other historians I wrote about that way, people like Alan Nevins and David Potter and Bruce Catton, Ella Lon, they are historians, I think, who had remarkable, productive careers, wrote things that are still worth looking at, but are seldom remembered today. They're sort of forgotten today. I've just finished rereading Bruce Catton's Army of the Potomac trilogy, and it's just stunningly good. That's all I can say about it. He was writing in 1950 before the literature that we have now, but he gets most things right. He does a huge amount with politics and the way they are. I mean, it's just, those are amazing books. They're, they're, I, I haven't read them since I was young. They're even better than I remember them. What about Shelby Foote? I like Shelby Foote too. I, I don't think he's as good a historian as Catton, but Foote was, I mean, Foote's a novelist who wrote three, decided to write three big fat books that weren't novels. And he has a novelist's eye for setting the scene. He's very good at that. I think sometimes he's a little bit too much lost causes for my taste right. in some places. Not everywhere. I, I think Shelby puts well worth reading. I think he's a good way for people to get interested in the war, but I think Captain's better. Well, and and uh, you say, I, I, think he, I think he's the one who says the line that the Union Army could have won this war with one hand t- tied behind right, the back. Yeah. And I think the second somebody like you hears that, it, it becomes very hard to overcome some of, you know, even if well, that's straight lost cause. That's yeah, straight right. retrospective right. Confederates after the war saying we never could have won the war. That's not what they're saying during the war. Would have made no sense for them to fight a war if that's what they really believe. And, and of course, it's not true. They, it, it is true that they, they couldn't conquer the United States, but they didn't have to. All they had to do was persuade the civilian population of the United States that the war wasn't worth fighting. You're too young to remember... Vietnam, but I'm not. That's a war. The United States military forces did not lose the war in Vietnam. The American people said, we're not going to support this anymore. And then the war ended. That's what had to happen for the Confederates during the Civil War. And they came very close in the summer of 1864 to achieving that. Uh, And they came pretty close a couple of other times. So, and Foote, 
Foote's comment makes it seem as if there was just never any chance ever because the Yankees had so much of everything and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Everybody knows that argument. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Lincoln and especially, so, I mean, you spend some time, which is always very enjoyable, uh, talking about uh, movies, Civil War movies, and uh, you've done a lot of work on that and on Civil War art and sort of where it, what it tells us about um, history, but more, more about memory. Um, so, so can, so, uh, particularly with Lincoln and the 13th amendment and, uh, picture the movie Lincoln, which I think 2012, Daniel Day Lewis, uh, and that whole movie is sort of the thrust of it is we must pass the 13th amendment because, you know, golly, we have to get something out of this war and we have to end yep. slavery. And certainly that, that did happen. Uh, but a lot of people have bought into this evolution that the the nor that the North has during the war. Well, it didn't start over slavery, but it evolved into that, and we learned. And Lincoln is sort of at the top of that. Lincoln underwent this evolution. You right. don't necessarily see that, or maybe I won't put words in your mouth. But what you say is the Thirteenth Amendment is still a tool to maintain the Union and keep the Union. So, can you talk well, about that? Yeah, absolutely, and I think that Lincoln Lincoln was very savvy. Of course, he 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 read the. The loyal, I, I don't say the North, I call it the loyal, the loyal states because there are four slaveholding states that stay loyal. Sure. But he, he understood that first to last, and he needed Democrats as he couldn't win the war with armies made only of Republicans. You need to draw from the whole citizenry, 45% of them at least are Democrats, so you've got to use a, a language that, that resonates with Democrats as well, and what that language is, is union. And the evidence of that is, is his last, I mean, the evidence is overwhelming, but directly pertinent to what you're asking in the 13th Amendment is that his last annual message to Congress went in early December 1864. And in that message, Abraham Lincoln very specifically said that in a great, uh, he very specifically said, I'm now going to paraphrase it because I, I won't get every word correctly, but he said, in a great war such as ours, you need to have a common purpose, a common end. In this war, that common end is union. And then he goes on to say, one of the tools we need to achieve that end of union is the 13th Amendment, because it'll hurt the Confederacy. So he very specifically said the 13th Amendment is a means to the greater end of union. Now, did he, did he want the 13th Amendment to pass the House? It had passed the Senate back in the spring of 64. Did he want it to pass the House? Of course he did. And he pushed for it. He pushed for not waiting till the new Congress came in. There was a huge gap before the new Congress came in in the 19th century, a huge time gap. So yes, he pushed for it. And, and the movie, so the movie is about a process. Yes, it was the process to push the 13th Amendment through the House of Representatives. But what most people will take away from that film is that by that point of the war, it was a war for emancipation for most people in the loyal states, and that simply isn't true. It's a war for which most people in the loyal states had agreed that emancipation was necessary, but necessary to win their larger goal of union. And and I think I think uh, well, you write about the Gettysburg Address and how it's become such it looms large in sort of our minds because of things that were written i guess long after the address but in in that moment it was not considered this grand speech and i think in that movie in particular 
you know, you hold on to uh, if you if you look at the Gettysburg Address and it's it sort of this is what this is about. This is now this new birth work. of freedom. It's yeah. about a new birth of freedom. I almost left the theater when very early in the movie because I just didn't think I could stand it. As, as it turned out, I loved it. But Daniel Day Lewis is brilliant in that movie. But the very first part of it, you have Lincoln going down. Some Union soldiers are getting ready to board transports to go down to capture Wilmington, North Carolina. And two Union soldiers, white Union soldiers, come up to him and start to quote the Gettysburg Address to him. And then an African-American soldier comes up and quotes the last part of it to him. And, I mean, it's just so mind-numbingly ridiculous that anyone could quote anything from the Gettysburg Address to Lincoln in early 1865. Lincoln probably couldn't have quoted the Gettysburg Address to himself then, but other people absolutely couldn't have. So that's a, that's a great example. I understand why Spielberg did that. We all know how important the Gettysburg Address is. It must have been important to them. And here are the soldiers quoting it to him, and really the African-American soldiers sort of lecturing him and then punctuating the lecture by quoting the last part of the Gettysburg Address to him. Just, just ludicrous ludicrous historically but effective cinematically right. i get it right uh, why why is uh, i th i think glory is a movie is glory your favorite civil war movie it is my favorite civil war which, movie. Uh, which i just uh, i i can't uh, it's hard to convince my fiance to rewatch all four hours of gettysburg but i was able to convince her to watch glory with me the other night after i read your book so why is glory your favorite well, I just think Glory, I think Glory combines several things. It has really good actors. It has, uh, it deals with, with I think the Antietam sequence in Glory is the best combat sequence from any Civil War film. It, and it gets most of the big things right historically. It gets a lot of little details wrong, and there's some presentism in it. The, the trip character is a little bit too much 1989 and a little bit less. Uh, 1863 but for the most part I think Glory gets things right and it's a very moving story and it, it deals with the antipathy between white soldiers and black soldiers and it, it, it does it I, I think it deals with a lot of themes very well and it's it's just so well acted and it just I find it I, I don't know how many times I've seen it many many times uh, and I still I still get a lot from it I didn't think, I, I didn't want to see it at first because uh, I couldn't quite imagine Ferris Bueller uh, as, as Robert Gould Shaw, but I think he actually did a great job. Yeah, I of, of course. Again, I'm I'm too young to have. I didn't see it when it came out. I of course many years later, and same with Ferris Bueller. Um, it's a it's it's a it's a good it's a it's a uh, profound movie and. Uh, and enjoyable to watch, which of course, when you can have both of those things in a movie, uh, even if there are some inaccuracies, uh, you know. Well, I mean, I th that goes to you know, sort of these things like battlefields and like movies can open a door to all of us. I mean, you know, that's certain. Of course, they can. You know, and so uh, yeah, no. So go ahead. I'm sorry, Doctor Gallagher. Well, no, the, the reason that movies are important, the reason I wrote a book about movies, and the reason that I include in this book. I, I deal with Abraham, with Lincoln and with Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter and with Glory, and I mention a few of the other ones in other places, is because far more people get their history from movies than get them from anything historians write. Even a really wretched Civil War movie would probably get 
a couple of million people to see it either in a theater or and and you know no book sells that way now i mean there's right. any book that anyone writes that sells that way never mind gone with the wind or uh, which over generations has shaped what people think about the civil war to a far greater degree than what historians have done right right um, so can you talk about uh, battlefields? Uh, and again, I know we've touched on this, but w- and we're touching on it in, in that previous uh, question. W- what role can battlefields play? What role do they play? Um, there, there's been a lot of talk about monuments recently. You wrote an article, um, you know, basically a very meaningful article. You know, we should be uncomfortable talking about that. Like we should be made to feel uncomfortable by monuments they should raise questions but we also should look at them the right way so uh, let me just go to a quote here Uh, because most americans uh have little appreciation for the difference between history and memory you know that's why they should be there i'm I'm sorry now i'm paraphrasing because i can't read my own handwriting but i mean you can almost use that argument inversely you know because because you can't really decipher whether this is sort of uh, a hero or not, you know, maybe they should come down. So I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate, but can you just sort of go into your, um, I mean, the current now is take everything down that makes anyone feel uncomfortable. Well, almost everything makes somebody feel uncomfortable and, and including, I would say life. Uh, One of the interesting things to me as I, I, I'm retired, been retired two years, but through my academic career of more than 30 years, I was struck more and more by how much of our education is, is, seems designed to try to avoid making anyone ever feel uncomfortable. And to me, that is not what education should be because it doesn't prepare people for life. Life isn't never feeling uncomfortable. Life is feeling uncomfortable all the time and dealing with it. The memorial landscapes are that way to me. What I wrote the piece you quoted from specifically is about this current incarnation of the movement, and it and it came out part came out of the House of Representatives, is to take down Confederate monuments on any federal land. Well, that would include taking them down at Gettysburg, for example. I was writing about Gettysburg, which it is it would be an outrageous violation of an incredibly valuable memorial landscape. It gives us a chance to see how Americans in the late 19th century and early 20th century and even later dealt with the memory of the Civil War. You can deal with it specifically with the monuments that are there, with the inscriptions, with the subjects, with when they went up, with the dedicatory speeches that were given when they went up. There's almost no place else, no, not almost, there is no place else in the United States that has a memorial landscape. There are more than 1,300 monuments at Gettysburg. And the ones that are most controversial are the ones dedicated to the individual Confederate states. Those are the main ones I dealt with in that article. But they are, they should be left there and interpreted and people should use them to understand A, the difference between history and memory, and B, the fact that there are versions of history, different versions of history of the same events and how they come about and how they clash with one another and how they sometimes align uh, anyway, it's uh, to me, that's one of the great things about Gettysburg. And I think even apart from things like that, battlefields are great places. I mean, I've taken my students to them for years. 
they allow you to get students to make a connection to the past and not just talk about tactical details. Okay, where was the 15th Massachusetts at Antietam? Oh, it's in the Westwoods getting butchered. Okay, that's interesting. But you can also move from the specific to, okay, what was at stake in September of 1862? What were the politics in September of 1862? What's the, all of that, they're just great teaching. They're great outdoor classrooms. I, I, I one of, one of the, uh, and there's a number of monuments that really fascinate, fascinate me, but one of them is Longstreet at Gettysburg because it wasn't put up until 1998. Right, exactly. And it's it's really small. I mean, it, it's comically small compared to the rest of them. Especially the horse. Yeah, right, right. Well, I mean, so, I mean, so I mean, just if you even you don't even have to have a lot of context there. I mean, if you're, you know, sort of driving along Confederate Avenue and you see these great statues and then all of a sudden, <laughs> who is that? You need binoculars to sort of make it out. So, I mean, I, there there is if we, so I, I guess what's so complicated is you have to sort of look at it the right way. I mean, and I think what a lot of people see is people visiting these monuments as sort of uh, their their worship may be too strong, but they're sort of they they mean different things to different people. So you know, obviously, you with forty years of studying and and knowing this stu- in and out, look at it and it's a tool and it's you're able to point to it and make meaning out of it. And, and it was it was put up at this point, and this is why it was put up. But other people go to them and sort of, it's got a different meaning altogether. And so, yeah. And let's be honest. For most people who go to Gettysburg, they don't stop and read the monuments. They couldn't tell you the Tennessee Monument from the Georgia Monument. From I mean, they, they'd have no clue about that. They're looking at cannons. I think most people of the Confederate monuments, the, the Virginia monument is the one that most people would be able to identify. Because that's Robert E. Lee and Traveler up on top of it. And it's looking right across towards Cemetery Ridge where uh, there's George Gordon Meade on Old Baldy over there looking the other direction. But I don't think most people, I, most people don't notice monuments wherever they are. And they're not, most people aren't offended because they don't even notice them. They couldn't tell you, they couldn't tell you what century most of the, somebody who saw Winfield Scott Hancock in Washington just picked 10 tourists walking by. They, A, A wouldn't know who Winfield Scott Hancock was. B, wouldn't know what century the Civil War took place in. And C, would just want to know uh, whether there's air conditioning in the National Gallery. So it's, I think a lot of this is a sort of manufactured outrage, but I'm, but I'm, which is not to say that I don't think monuments do not genuinely unsettle some people. I think they do, but I think history unsettles people too, and I don't think you should try to sanitize history. I think you need to deal with the hard edges of history as well as we talked earlier. I think a lot of the history that people get now about the United States is unrelentingly negative in schools. And I think that it's important to deal with the negative things, but it's also important to deal with the positive things. And there are a huge number of positive things as well. And it's a a good organizing question is, what is it about the United States that makes so many people want to come here? And that has always been true, no matter how much pushback from the people who are already here saying, oh, the Irish are ruining the country. No, the Italians are ruining the country. No, the Mexicans are ruining the country. Someone's always ruining the country. But the question is, why do they always want to come here? And they don't want to come here because they think it's the worst country in the world. And so it, that's 
it's just always more complicated, always more complicated. History is complicated. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, but that's not how we want it now. The 24-hour yeah. news stations do not want complexity it's it's black and white it's good and bad as you as yeah. you write in your book and uh it provides a lot of people to sort of as you said back to the you know sort of the first thing feel superior to people in the past which isn't a very useful exercise especially when in, in writing history it's not useful at all and it's so easy and just as it will be easy in 50 years to look at us and say look at them how could they have look at them they're so benighted I mean, it's, it's, it's just inevitable. It's, it's one of the certainties of history. Each generation can look back and feel superior to generations before. Dr. Gary Gallagher, the book is The Enduring Civil War. Please check it out. Uh, uh, Dr. Gallagher, you are, so your work is great, and, and I could talk to you all day, uh, but I just want to thank you right now, and you've been generous with your time. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the History Tavern Podcast, and a special thank you to Dr. Gary Gallagher. Please check out his book, The Enduring Civil War, Reflections on the Great American Crisis. You can subscribe to the History Tavern Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and follow on Twitter and Facebook.